0: This episode of Victor's Children was planned before Hamas's attack into Israel and the genocidal onslaught of Israeli settler colonial violence against Palestinians in Gaza and beyond that's followed. In the show notes, you'll find a link to a classic document by the Palestinian Marxist Jabra Nicola, which I think is worth rereading or reading at this time. But I'd like to begin this episode of Victor's Children with a recording of Palestinian Marxist Rafif Ziad reading her unforgettable poem, We Choose Life, Sir. Whether you've heard this poem before or not, I hope you'll find it speaks to the struggle for freedom for Palestine today, and I hope that all listeners will contribute to that struggle as best as you can.
1: I'll start with this poem. I wrote this poem when the bombs were dropping on Gaza, and I was the media spokesperson for the coalition. Uh, doing a lot of the organizing and we had stayed up to about six o'clock in the morning perfecting every soundbite and by the end if you're Palestinian you know most Palestinians get tired and start pronouncing our P's as B's so we become Palestinians by the end of the day so I was practicing my P's all night and the next morning um, one of the journalists asked me don't you think it would all be fine if you just stopped teaching your children to hate um, I did not insult the person, I was very polite, Uh, but I wrote this poem uh, as a response to these types of questions we Palestinians always get. Today, my body was a TV'd massacre. Today, my body was a TV'd massacre that had to fit into sound bites and word limits. Today, my body was a TV'd massacre that had to fit into sound bites and word limits, filled enough with statistics to counter measured response. And I perfected my English, and I learned my UN resolutions. But still, he asked me, Ms. Don't you think everything would be resolved if you would just stop teaching so much hatred to your children? Pause. I look inside of me for strength to be patient. But patience is not at the tip of my tongue as the bombs drop over Gaza. Patience has just escaped me. Pause. Smile. We teach life, sir. Rafif, remember to smile. Pause. We teach life, sir. We, Palestinians, teach life after they have occupied the last sky. We teach life after they have built their settlements and apartheid walls after the last skies. We teach life, sir. But today, my body was a TV'd massacre made to fit into sound bites and word limits. And just give us a story, a human story, you see. This is not political. We just want to tell people about you and your people. So give us a human story. Don't mention that word apartheid and occupation. This is not political. You have to help me as a journalist to help you tell your story, which is not a political story. Today, my body was a TV'd massacre. How about you give us a story of a woman? who needs medication. How about you? Do you have enough bone broken limbs to cover the sun? Hand me over your dead and give me the list of their names in 1,200 word limits. Today, my body was a TV'd massacre made to fit into sound bites and word limits and move those that are desensitized to terrorist blood. But they felt sorry they felt sorry for the cattle over Gaza so I give them UN resolutions and statistics and we condemn and we deplore and we reject and these are not two equal sides occupier and occupied and a hundred dead 200 dead and a thousand dead and between that war crime and massacre I vent out words and smile not exotic smile not terrorist. and I recount I recount a hundred dead two hundred dead a thousand dead is anyone out there will anyone listen I wish I could wail over their bodies I wish I could just run barefoot in every refugee camp and hold every child cover their ears so they wouldn't have to hear the sound of bombing for the rest of their life the way I do today my body was a TV'd massacre and let me just tell you there is nothing your UN resolutions have ever done about this and no soundbite no soundbite I come up with with no matter how good my english gets no soundbite no soundbite no soundbite no soundbite will bring them back to life no soundbite will fix this we teach life sir we teach life sir we palestinians wake up every morning to teach the rest of the world life sir yeah.
0: Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada, talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja-Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. Most people on the left have at least heard of the Russian Revolution of 1917. I imagine many Victor's children listeners know a certain amount about it. But although some people know that the Russian Revolution was part of a wave of class struggle in the years that followed 1917, and that wave included revolutionary upheavals, today, the events that happened in Germany in 1923 are not well known on the radical left, at least in the Anglosphere. A century after that fateful turning point, one whose outcome had wide-ranging consequences, Socialists are fortunate that Sean Larson has written an essay about Germany in 1923 that's been published on the website of the journal Specter. So, Sean, welcome to Victor's Children. Could you introduce yourself?
2: Um, yeah, thanks, David. This is uh, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Um, my name is Sean Larson. Uh, I did my PhD on the German Revolution and the Weimar Republic. I'm political education coordinator at Haymarket Books and a founding editor of Rampant Magazine, which is based in Chicago.
0: You want to just tell listeners a little bit about Rampant?
2: Sure. Um you can find Rampant at rampantmag.com. Uh it's a abolitionist revolutionary socialist uh magazine. We cover a lot of international politics and Chicago politics um and um yeah, we publish pretty regularly uh since
0: 2020. Great. Thank you. Uh, So before we talk about 1923, we actually have to go back uh, and understand the German Revolution of 1918 and some of the things that happened after that. So I realize this is a big ask, but can you take us through the main events between, say, 1918 and the middle of 1922? Just the the key things that happened?
2: Uh, Sure, I can try. I think this is... uh constant issue with trying to grapple with the dynamics of 1923 which i consider the most revolutionary period in the five years of the german revolution um, for reasons that we can get to but in order to get there and in order to have conversations about it you kind of have to know uh the history that led up to it um which built the foundations of the situation we saw in 1923 so starting with the first world war people probably know um that you know there was a, a huge socialist movement in germany before the first world war organized in the social democratic party of germany um some of the top leaders of that un- uh, of that movement voted for war credits uh to start the first world war they were allied with the free trade unions which were social democratic unions the unions actually made the deal before the social democratic leaders in parliament um for the first world war but that war um, basically did a lot to transform on a sociological level, what the party and the unions were, um, at the same time as it still retained a lot of loyalty among workers. So, um, over the course of the war, there is, uh, we can get into the different party splits and stuff, but there are a number of mass strikes, um, that are led by women workers, uh, in that kind of started to create a uh, council infrastructure of workers and soldiers' councils, the same thing that they had in Russia that were called Soviets there. Um, they spring up all around the country, uh, pose an alternative power structure in late 1918. There's the November Revolution, overthrow the Kaiser, um, and the councils persist. Um, the efforts for the councils were spearheaded also by a group in the unions called the Revolutionary Shop Stewards. Um, they were primarily in the metalworking industries, which were really key to the war. Um, and uh, they also were took on leading roles in the councils. After the fall of the Kaiser, there's a pretty crucial um, alliance that's formed between the leaders of the free trade unions and the industrialists. And, and in Germany, the industrialists were vertically integrated um, they're very powerful, uh, m- huge organizations with with branches in all different spheres, led by this like same few people, um, and so they are united on a scale that l- maybe we wouldn't see um, in in other situations. Um, a lot of that was due to the war, um, but they come together and they form this this alliance, this institution um, called the Central Arbeitsgemeinschaft or the Central Working Group, um, and that creates the conditions that the the German economy and and politics really function around for the next four or five years. Um, And so we'll come back to that later. But I just want to mention that because it's really important in understanding the first phase of the Weimar Republic. After that is created, there's a persistent dual power scenario. So a few social democratic leaders join a kind of provisional government at the same time as there's this council power challenging them. Um, The council bid for power against the government. Fails for a variety of reasons in December and January 1918, and then uh, in January, um, revolutionaries like Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht are murdered by the proto-fascist Freikorps uh, under the command of Gustav Noske, who is also a social democrat. Um, Throughout the spring of 1919, uh, communists and Spartacists, um, that's Rosa Luxemburg's group, were rounded up in city after city and shot dead by the Freikorps in a pretty bloody campaign, which obviously caused some resentment, um, we can call it, among communists for the SPD. um, But it also kind of stabilized the, the, you know, it killed the council movement and it stabilized the first uh, phase of the um, Weimar Republic um, and ended the first phase of the revolution. After that, over the next year or so, there's a second phase. Um, There's actually a great book about this that was just translated. It's by Axel Weypert called The Second Revolution. Um, Basically, the political council movement that existed moves onto the defensive. It enters uh, more shop floor based organizations called factory councils, and it conducts more economically focused struggles. Um, That's also where the shop stewards, the revolutionary shop stewards um, uh, become a kind of, you know, they they go and then become a kind of nervous system of uh, of the opposition within the um, free trade unions um, and kind of keep alive the spirit of the revolution. That basically persists until March 1920 when there's a putsch by, or a coup by um, right-wing forces under um, a guy named Kapp, uh, the Kapp Putsch. They do the coup, the government flees, um, and then the biggest mass strike in European history up to that point completely shuts down the country and kicks the Kappists out. That then sparks an armed rebellion in the Ruhr, um, which is to the west of Germany. It's the biggest industrial region. A lot of mines exist there. Like I said, capital was vertically integrated. So you've got the coal mines, the the iron, and then the steel all within the same kind of region. Um, and all of the workers are kind of connected through the factory councils. Um, there's an armed uprising in the Ruhr um, that lasts for uh, a few months. Um, and it was then, b- before it gets put down by the government in alliance with the German army. Um, uh, but that whole experience of the cap push, the mass strike, and the armed uprising basically revives the labor movement. Um, in Germany and specifically as revolutionary elements. Um, and I think it's also worth noting there that in response to the CAP putsch and that uprising at the same time, the SPD uh led government expanded the kind of state security apparatus and starts intervening more proactively in issues of public order, um, including on the shop floor, in alliance with factory managers and, and employers in order to kind of maintain more of a stability. All the while you've got demands by allied, you know. Uh, the U.S., France, and Great Britain for um, reparations, um, for kind of like a settlement uh, with for Germany. And so the German government is in pretty stark crisis. They're trying to manage these contradictions. Um, in October 1920, a few things happen. The factory councils, as they existed, get subsumed under the Union's. Um, a global economic, a new conjuncture kind of uh, happens on a global economic scale, uh, which is a recession. And the U.S. and Britain and France respond to that by mass layoffs. You know, it's it's deflationary policy. Um, and in Germany, the USPD, which had split from the Social Democrats during the war.
0: Um, the Independent Social Democratic Party. That's right.
2: Um, they uh, so they had existed since 1917. I'll just maybe say a little background on them now um in 1917 in response to the russian revolution they split from the spd because of the spd's war policies um and they were you know that's where all the factory council uh activists were all the revolutionary shop stewards the spartacists were initially there um, behind rosa Luxemburg, um and it was kind of this third party on the national scale in germany in 1920 uh a lot of the people i mean there's a lot we can say about this but they split um and uh Half of their membership joins the Communist Party in affiliation with the Communist International. Um, And so now it's no longer the the Communist Party after December 1920 was no longer just a kind of propagandist sect, which it was um, basically from 1919 and 1920. Now it's a mass force, not just in numbers, but also with a new strategy um, for initiating actions among union members to kind of win them over regardless of their party, um, through that kind of action. The new strategy was articulated in the KPD union headquarters, um, in Stuttgart under, uh, Jakob Waldscher, Hans Titel, um, uh, and Brand- Heinrich Brandler. These are some of the main union people in, um, the leadership of the KPD, um, in conjunction with, uh, a common turn, um, leader named Carl Radek. Um, that new, That new kind of strategy was called the United Front eventually, though initially it it didn't have that title. Um, In 1921, so this is just like a couple of months later, uh, that kind of securitization of the police forces that I was talking about in response to Cap Putsch. Uh, leads to a heavily armed police forces moving directly into factories in central Germany. So central Germany, it comprises mainly of Saxony and Thuringia. These are the, the two um, kind of states within Germany that are have a lot of labor radicals um, in them. And police move into the factories uh, to try to enforce labor discipline. There's a lot of looting going on because of the um, pretty dire economic situation this entire time in Germany. Um the communists uh, in response had just kind of come out of a very turbulent unification process, hardly had their bearings, um, but uh, also responded in a pretty foolish way by calling for a general strike and armed resistance to the police action. Um, the KPD uh, then, you know, members who followed that um, where they did often turned against other workers who didn't heed that call. Um, that didn't happen everywhere. Uh And but where I where it did, I think it had some pretty drastic effects. um, And the party ended up losing over half of its membership over the following months. So kind of a shot in the gut right after the the unification process. After there's a whole, you know, assessment, that's a whole other phase of history. Skipping real quick. After that, the KPD leadership shifts um, uh, toward a guy named Ernst Meyer. um, And he uh, and his, you know, the whole trade union apparatus of the KPD pursued the united front policy as it was kind of built from 1920 in that trade union department along those lines um, for the next year. Um, And so this involved a kind of shift from a kind of abstract sloganeering radicalism toward uh, initiating concrete actions that could unite broader layers of workers um, in struggles around basic needs. That was kind of their biggest thing is like immediate needs of people, what they need, food, wage increases, you know, work for unemployed people um and i think that one of the key elements and this is going to come up later so i just want to spend a little time on this but one of the key elements is that it was a shift from a passivity of various kinds both radical passivity and kind of uh social democratic passivity towards the self activity of workers um on behalf of you know themselves inside and outside the party um and that self active part was constantly stressed during the unification process of the two parties um that people would learn the nature of the system of the capitalist system and their their relationships with their bosses um and who they could trust really not just by the slogans and the analysis and the propaganda of the KPD which did have its role and served them very well during the, the initial phase of the revolution but that like now they were going to shift towards um those kinds of collective actions that could be built upon and built upon the kind of collective confidence that it was required to take risks together, um, and that was kind of their kind of revolutionary strategy. So the united front was ended up over that that year, nineteen twenty one to nineteen twenty two, being extremely effective. It built back the membership of the Communist Party. Um, it also built out their bases in the Union. So part of this was taking over union bastions, um, and it built back a lot of the credibility of the party by summer nineteen twenty two.
0: Okay, that's very helpful in setting the stage. Uh, We've got now as far as the middle of 1922. Can you talk about what happened in mid-1922 and then take us through into the spring of 1923?
2: Um, Yes. So uh, in summer of 1922, um, the foreign minister of Germany, Walter Rathenau, was assassinated. Um, The KPD launches a massive campaign against the right. He was assassinated by right-wingers. And... The KPD tries to coordinate this with the social democratic free trade unions and the SPD. um, But uh, and it's pretty successful. I write about this in the article. um, But then uh, the the SPD and the trade unions kind of abandon the joint struggle in order to cooperate more closely with the right in the Reichstag. They think that they have a parliamentary solution that's going to like ban the right. Um, That kind of once they abandoned uh, the United Front. That kind of killed the movement, um, but it also created a new situation uh, of relative isolation for the communists. So over the course of the last year, the United Front had meant joint operations with the leaderships of both of those parties in order to kind of create the conditions for that self-activity that I was talking about. After this point, there's a shift towards more isolation. At the same time as the Communist Party is much stronger, has its own footing um, by like late summer 1922. So the KPD then shifts the the united front strategy still within the full parameters of that strategy toward the relaunch of a national factory council movement on a on a kind of more revolutionary basis um and concentrated its efforts on on building those so that actually comes out of another council movement which was not initiated by the communist parties called the control committees and these were lar- led almost entirely by uh, women workers housewives non-workers um, to um control the prices of this kind of spiraling inflation. Because what happens when Ratzenau is assassinated is the persistent inflation in Germany um also starts to take on uh elements of hyperinflation, which it just like spirals up and up. People have seen these images of workers with wheelbarrows full of uh full of German marks. You know, you get y- your wages devalued within a couple of days, and so you really gotta um it's just it's a financial situation that caused a lot of chaos. Um, but so the control committees came out of that. And from those, um, also, uh, the factory councils um, started to emerge with KPD help. The hyperinflation um, was also squeezing employers' organizations. Um, and so, you know, they, they, by this time, over the course of the fall, especially launch uh, an employer's offensive uh, and um, they're trying to basically terminate the conditions of the Central that central working arrangement. The key element of which was the eight-hour day. Um, and I, I think that it's important to say, like, the eight-hour day was was a, a very important reform. It improved workers' lives, but it also had structural effects on the German economy. It meant employment was kept up. It meant that when U.S. and France and Great Britain introduced deflationary measures and made, you know, basically kicked a lot of people out of work to rationalize their industries to make them competitive again in the recession. In Germany, they didn't do that. They just maintained a bloated employment force. I mean, bloated from capitalist standards and viewpoints, of course, um, not from the viewpoint of like people meeting their everyday needs. Um, And so it had been now four and a half, almost five years, and uh, the employers were, pushing for the end of this kind of eight hour day and the alliance with the unions um, in order to kind of rationalize the um, uh, the economy. The hyperinflation was really making sure that um, those kind of economic calculations were kind of coming due. So they went on the attack. They even forced the Weimar government to resign in November. Um, and it looked like the big class confrontation between the workers and the employers was about to happen at the end of 1922. But then the French occupied the Ruhr. And that kind of temporarily suspended the the conflict both between, um, I mean, the the conflict between the employers and the government. They were really putting a lot of pressure on the government to kind of break the back of the labor movement Um, in favor of, you know, once the French came in, there was, they instituted a national front uh, of passive resistance against the French. So the new government under a guy named uh, Kuno was also able to temporarily stabilize the German currency, um, the mark. Uh, from February to April, even though it was at a pretty astronomical level already. Um, And so over the course of the spring, there's some relative stability with this national front going on. That, though, collapses in mid-April, which then unleashes a kind of new wave of worker unrest.
0: Right. So in May of 1923, a strike wave began in the Ruhr, which was a crucial manufacturing region, as you had mentioned. Um, So can you talk about how this strike wave was different than the previous ones and how the communist party the kpd responded to the difficult situation that was then created um yeah
2: so uh the french had occupied this region called the ruhr um the industrial region um and by that point the unions uh especially in the ruhr had been integrated into the state again as a kind of cross class administrators of this passive resistance because Germany couldn't rely on you know, the structures of the German government in the Ruhr because it was occupied by the French. And so they, in order to maintain this national front of passive resistance to the French, um, they relied on private organizations. And one of the big ones was the unions. Um, so those unions were not fighting employers, even though wages were collapsing with the hyperinflation. So that's the conditions in which um, you know, unemployment also starts to rise um, because of French seizures of um, different assets. Um, and the unemployed councils start to emerge uh, alongside the factory councils and the control committees. Um, And they work with the factory councils and uh, a new kind of form of worker paramilitary organizations called the Proletarian Hundreds. I write more about this in the article, Um, but all of those kind of coordinate together um, to uh, launch all kinds of workplace and street actions demanding work and food for the unemployed. Um, this came to armed confrontations with the city administrators in several instances, and that dynamic continued to escalate um, in into May, uh, leading to spontaneous insurrections against both the French and the German employers in several cities, um, in particular a city called Mülheim. Um, although the, the KPD had been steadily escalating the strikes and actions through this United Front strategy all year, um, the this kind of wildcat movement in May was really starting to escape the control of the communists. And so the party turned toward reining in uh, the movement by shifting um, it to kind of purely economic or wage channels and cutting out um, the kind of more flammable political demands and campaigns. And the reason that they did this, the reason that they kind of started to rein in the movement was because uh, they feared of the, you know, the relative isolation of the Ruhr. So this was the only region in Germany that was occupied by the French. It was creating all kinds of like radical conditions. Um, but they did, the KPD didn't want to have a revolution in the one province. Um, and they fully thought that, that that was like on the table. Um, they said we could have established proletarian power and a dictatorship of the proletariat in the Ruhr. No problem if we had like let the let this movement continue. But they didn't want to do that because they feared that there would be no support from the rest of the country um, when the inevitable re- retaliation came through, both from the French and from the German government. Um, and they didn't want it to be crushed and it to be a whole demoralizing
0: experience.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So then during the as the spring is ending and going into summer of 1923, on the far right, we have a uh, growth of fascist activity. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Social Democrats, the SPD, did and and what the Communist Party, the KPD, did in response to this growing far right uh,
2: threat? Yes. So um, a lot of the growth of the far right. So it was happening in the Ruhr. I think that the anti-French passive resistance and National Front really helped to spur on the the growth of the far right in in the Ruhr. Um, The far right were also acting as security forces in many areas. But it also the main area um, and kind of bastion of the far right was in Bavaria. Um, So the fascists were um, organized in a number of different groups, including the NSDAP, the Nazis. Um, And in Bavaria, I think it's instructive to look at just how how these kind of things developed, because it was kind of at the at the forefront of um, the fight against fascists. The SPD. Um, members in Bavaria Uh, so this is different from the national government they often had conflicts between the the local organizations and the national government within the SPD but in Bavaria they initially kind of hesitantly formed self-defense organizations um, armed self-defense organizations uh, that also came after a lot of communist pressure Um, but they really kind of failed to use them effectively um, against the Nazis they had them um, but would refuse to kind of they would protect workers meetings. Um, but when, whenever there were demonstrations called, um, the, the SPD often shied away from kind of like shows of force. Um, so when the Nazi threats kind of came over the summer, they're, they're like raiding homes and, uh, Jewish shops and, um, worker union halls. Um, and the, the, the paramilitary organizations, I think, um, weren't really used to kind of protect, uh, the worker organizations. Um so the SPD eventually offered to voluntarily disband their own self-defense organizations if the Bavarian government banned all of the the kind of non-military organizations like the Sturmabteilung the SA of the Nazis they thought you know well the government will ban them and then everybody will be safe um this was a bit futile uh because the Bavarian government itself was backing the Nazis Uh, And facilitating their cooperation with the illegal army that had been uh, being built up, especially in Bavaria, that consisted of Freikorps members. It was privately financed, um, and so you know a lot of the raids themselves uh, that the Nazis were doing were because they the Nazis deputized themselves as kind of like police forces, and they had in many cases they had the backing of the Bavarian government. Um, The National SPD essentially thought the main threat was on the left, um, and did little to confront the fascist threat. So, like we saw that. After, um, after Rata uh that was the last time they really thought the threat was on the right. But then during the course of um, 1923, uh, they were both integrated in the state behind the National Front and not really um, building a kind of united front against the fascists. The KPD sought to expand the United Front um, as a means of kind of undercutting the fascists appeal. So they thought, you know, initially what they had built out is kind of like a workplace um Unif revolutionary strategy. They're like, this is actually part and parcel of how we undermine the fascists. Their aim had two main uh, there were two main aims. So one was to directly confront the fascists militarily. Um, They had, you know, this is coming shortly after Mussolini's march on Rome. They'd learned uh, from the defeat of the workers movement in Italy. Um, And they were like, we, there's a certain point at which we need to directly confront the fascists, um, because they're killing workers indiscriminately. Um, And also the second part of this uh, United Front strategy was to go to the regular workers who were in a state of kind of total desperation with, um, with an alternative communist future. um, Because it was to those workers who the fascists were appealing with kind of calls for stability and order and like an end to this four and a half year long crisis. Um, so the United French approach really applied to uh, applied to workplace actions um with kind of political dimensions. It was meant to kind of escalate wage struggles into political confrontations um as well as to street demonstrations, including the kind of in late July, a lot of this culminated in the communist attempt to have a anti-fascist day of action around the country um that you know, we can say more about that, but basically that, that was part of their anti-fascist
0: strategy. Okay. So in the summer of nineteen twenty three, the class struggle, intensified so please tell us about what was what was happening and the response of the the kpd leadership and and why they responded the way that they did
2: um so yeah i think in july as a lot of this fascist activity is happening um that's starts to kind of like the, the, the french had continued to occupy the Ruhr, um and a lot of this emanates from that region so i'll just start there i think first the Ruhr movement exploded in kind of mass protests and now with the hyperinflation at its complete height um, by late July. Like we're talking, you know, people uh couldn't even strike because the distance between their factories and the markets where they would buy uh their food or whatever they needed was took long enough for the their wages to get completely devalued. So they couldn't leave their workplaces. So they started a new tactic of factory occupations um, and mine occupations. Um, and you know, uh that I think was part of a more a, a more widespread kind of wildcat strategy. Several towns were brought under factory council control. Um, we've got you know some strikes, but mainly it's factory occupations and in, in the kind of worker-sponsored passive resistance against employers. Um, it was uh, probably the most revolutionary. It was uh, as one historian called it the most sustained and most widespread mass revolutionary movement in the history of the Weimar Republic in the Ruhr. Um, that then by August spread to Berlin where the the headquarters of the National Factory Council movement um, was, they called a general strike. A lot of this was directed against the government of Germany uh, under Kuno. The general strike brought down the government, um, forced them to resign within 24 hours, and then it persisted uh, for another two days. While that strike is happening, that general strike that emanated from Berlin is happening, it spread elsewhere to the country, especially in Hamburg, um, in the north, and in central Germany, Saxony and Thuringia where um, there's mass demonstrations, there's occupations, there's a general strike there as well that expands pretty rapidly and and an atmosphere of civil war um, with, you know, a lot of police killings, um, proletarian self-defense armies being assembled and organized, um, and the council movement uh, calling for worker control of production. Um, All of that was happening even after the fall of Kuno, um, the KPD... In all of these movements, is constantly being caught off guard. They don't really expect the the militancy of the strike in the roar. They don't expect it to spread to Berlin to Berlin, and they don't expect they don't expect the general strike in Berlin to persist in central Germany for so many days after. Um, and so, you know, they misjudged a lot of the extent of the movement. Um, they also had trouble coordinating communications between regions themselves with the hyperinflation, with everybody on strike. Um, And so there's a lot of difficulties that arise that, you know, I don't think can be reduced to policy decisions. Um, But in that context, the KPD did push for the coordinated end to almost all of these movements in one region after another. So they kind of the movement leapt from the Ruhr to Berlin. When it did that, the KPD was already kind of pushing for the coordinated end of the movement in the Ruhr. In Berlin, the general strike last three days. On the second day, they're they're considering calling for the coordinated end of it or pushing it into economic channels at the same time as is just starting up in central Germany. Um and then in the end in central Germany, they also call for the um coordinated end. Um again, the same reasons. Uh they fear retaliation. Um, and they're also assessing that the workers weren't ready to push the movement further. Um, in their kind of state of total desperation. And I cannot emphasize enough the degree to which the hyperinflation is just collapsing social reality around people at this time. So after those strikes are kind of brought to an end, a new government, um, what was called a grand coalition of a number of the, the bourgeois parties in conjunction with the, with the participation of the SPD um, as a kind of left cover come into power, they sought to stabilize the mark uh, on the backs of the workers. So like uh, on the terms of the employers by killing that kind of post-war um, arrangement with the eight-hour day. Um, and that really is like, when once they're able to do that in September, um, I think is where you see the first phase of the kind of economic backbone of the Weimar Republic come to an end. Um, the empl- employment kind of stops being floated. Uh, a lot of people get thrown out of work. Um, and the workers movement that was possible based upon that employment arrangement um, before rationalization and the deflationary measures um, starts to get on on pretty shaky footing.
0: So at this point, we have to talk about the role of the top leaders of the Russian Communist Party, which becomes really significant for what happens in Germany. Um, it's worth understanding here that at this point, Lenin had not yet died, but he was out of the picture. He'd been incapacitated by a stroke um, and sent to a sanatorium after that. So can you just talk about... Um, the role of the leaders of the, the Communist Party in Russia and you know, what their decisions were and then what happened in terms of the top leadership of the, the KPD in, in Germany. Um, of course, we have to bear in mind here, there's a lot of anti-communist mythology around all this. Uh, and I think it's p- hopefully clear to listeners that uh, you know, the Communist Party in Germany is in no way some kind of uh, puppet of the Bolsheviks in, uh, in Russia. This is a, we're talking about a mass party led by very experienced, uh, you know, revolutionary worker leaders here, but their relationship to the Russians, the dominant party in the communist international, the Comintern is is really important at this point. So can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So um,
2: I think, you know, the Comintern leaders, a lot of different Comintern leaders have been coordinating with the German party uh, over uh, a number of years prior to this. So this is not like An introduction of a new force. Um, But I do think that there was an introduction of a a pretty new um, approach to that collaboration. Um, So, in August, kind of after (laughs) the mass movement, uh, Zinoviev, uh, who is the leader of the Comintern, the Communist International, uh, decided uh, that an insurrection had to be organized in Germany now. Um, And he laid out a plan for it um, in mid August. The KPD then followed that plan. Uh, to organize an insurrection, to procure arms, um, basically uh, to kind of conspire for this kind of um, revolution that was going to happen. The German October, which they called not because it was planned for October uh, though, you know, eventually it was Um, initially it wasn't, but rather it was supposed to model um, be modeled on the uh, Russian October. Um, So the KPD followed this plan by going underground basically in Germany Um, They withdrew from all of their leading posts in the council formations um, that had led these mass strikes and actions um, in order to prepare militarily for the kind of secret uh, revolution and get their organization centralized enough to carry it out. A lot of this centered, uh, these plans kind of centered on the central German regions of Saxony and Thuringia. These were industrial bases, especially of like um, the chemical industry and uh, what they called electrotechnical industry at the time. Um, and uh, they were also important because they were governed. those those states were governed by um, what were called left SPD members um, who had a lot of friction with the national SPD leadership, um, and were willing to ally with the Communist Party. Um, so by October, um, after the Communists had kind of withdrawn from a lot of these council formations and started to try to prepare, for a, a, you know, Russian-style revolution. Um, Several of the leading communists took ministerial posts within the two governments in Saxony and Turingia, and, you know, their goal was to kind of get, prepare the revolution. They proclaimed their efforts to arm and feed the workers, um, and they pushed for what they called a workers' government um, on a national level. Um, You know, there's a lot of historical debates around that. I will just say one thing, which is that the workers' government had – there were a lot of debates around it what, from above, from below, but all forms basically assumed that a workers' government was the launch of a civil war scenario. So it had really nothing to do with um, a kind of like co-governance situation. Um uh, so they, the communists enter the governments in Saxony and Thuringia, even as the, the German Reichswehr, the army, uh, is threatening to invade the central German states and squash them. On October 21st, um, there in Saxony, there was a Congress of the factory councils called uh, where Brandler, who is the, the leader of the Communist Party at the time and also had one of the mis- ministerial posts, put a resolution for a general strike that would lead to an insurrection um, as kind of like something that the councils would take up. Um, the the left SPD allies balked at this um, and refused to support the call. Um, so the the kind of planned revolution eventually was called off. Um, and I do think that it's worth noting that the KPD also failed to kind of mobilize any extra parliamentary, extra government grassroots mobilization that would have put the pressure on the, S- the left SPD in Saxony um, to like, you know, if they're going to abandon their ties to the government. They need somebody, somebody to rely on, and that mass movement wasn't there at the time, largely because the KPD uh, kind of rank and file um, had been pulled out of these movements, lost touch with the rest of the kind of active working class um, by going underground over the last two months. Um, so a lot of that, I think, uh, was complete self sabotage.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is—it's really extraordinary to think about a mass party deeply immersed in the in the class struggle pulling itself out, going underground at a moment like this. Um, It's hard to wrap your mind around. Um, But you write in the the essay in um, Salvage that soon after the failed German October, the myth-making and factional quarrels began with a heresy hunt replacing analysis. And here it's just worth mentioning, there's one text, which is probably the, the most read article on the far left about Germany in 1923, for people who've read anything about it, which is Leon Trotsky's essay, The Lessons of October. Can you say something briefly about what this debate in the aftermath um of the failure was, what that date was like, and just a little bit about Trotsky's essay?
2: Um yeah, so you know, a lot, I'm not a historian of Russia, but um a lot of uh the uh, analyses of the kind of oppositional the factions and the russian opposition within the russian communist party um will will point towards this moment um as the kind of origin of the russian opposition and in many ways of trotskyism as a kind of as a movement or a self-contained thing um whether that's you know considered by its enemies or its protagonists um so um there are some pretty big factional squabbles around who to blame for the failed German October that everybody was kind of counting on especially in Russia um as the NEP the new economic policy was uh causing a lot of um uh resentment and um opposition amongst especially Bolshevik ranks um Trotsky wrote this short book that basically said uh he was comparing he was comparing the German October with the Russian October and trying to find the problems. Um, And his book, The Lessons of October, basically said that the leadership was not decisive enough. Um, It's a subjective problem. There was an extraordinary revolutionary opportunity um, and the subjective issue was the problem, why it wasn't seized. That subjective issue can be reduced basically to the resolve of the leadership of the parties. Um, And he said that for a lot of reasons, many of which actually had to do with a faction fight in the Russian party where he was throwing shade on Zinoviev who had faltered, uh, before the Bolshevik uprising in 1917. Um, so that, you know, I don't think that these, these aren't serious, they're, they're drawing on historical activities, but it's, it's a propaganda war. Um, a lot of that is actually outlined in, in a book that came out, I think in 2017 by Frederick Corney, um, called the literary discussion in the Russian communist party, which was neither literary nor a discussion. Um, And that was basically the faction fight. But Trotsky's um, assessment of Germany ended up having a lot of influence, even over historians, like half a century and more later. Um, So uh, I think that Trotsky's assessment, his analysis basically turns the question of political strategy into one of moral fortitude of the leaders. Um, And, uh, you know, that I think had effects on, on, on the Russian party fight. There was an alternative analysis put forward at the time. And then much later in like 1930, 1931 by Brandler's close ally in the former KPD leadership, um, uh, a guy named August Tollheimer. Um, um, and his goal was to try to combat the various myths and kind of self justifications built up around 1923. There's actually a few books that were written in Germany that kind of took Tollheimer's line, um, by Jens Becker um, and Harold Jentsch, even a book about 1923 that gives more sociological uh, detail around the 1923 movement. But Talheimer's analysis stressed that the objective conditions in Germany were not right for revolution. So basically, Brandler's and the, the centrale, the leadership, of the KPD's decision not to launch an insurrection was therefore justified if the objective conditions weren't ready. So that framework, um, between kind of either subjective factors or objective conditions basically set the narrative for almost all the subsequent studies of 1923. Um, and that's unfortunate, I think, because a, um, that framework is clearly like set by power political maneuvers in the Russian party, um, and not by like, uh, an analysis of history and B because it's wrong. Um, you know, there's a lot more we can get into, but, uh, the major factor of the objective conditions in Germany at the time was the hyperinflation, and the hyperinflation kind of dominated all spheres of social and political and e- economic life in Germany. Um, that was a product of the class struggle, and you can trace it from the time of the revolution of the 1918 revolution. Uh, the the policies of the government and of the industrialists. And the reason that the German economy took this different course from all the other industrialized economies in the West was because at time, like at discrete stages, um, time and time again, almost every year, um, because of the power of the revolutionary workers movement. Um, and so I, I I, think that like trying to escape uh, and get past this subjective factors, which is really reduced to the decisions and moral fortitude of the leadership versus like, this objective conditions that we're just um, looking at from outside with no bearing on, it obscures a lot of the fact that this united front policy and a lot of the, the the power of the German labor movement created over the course of four and a half, five years, objective conditions that were conducive to revolution. And uh, there's a lot of factors beyond their control. It wasn't spontaneously kind of sui generis um, of revolutionary uh, condition or or situation came solely from the policy of some party or something like that. But you have to look at them in conjunction and the kind of interaction of a lot of different forces created this kind of subject object situation uh, that the KPD was in. Um, We can, yeah, there's a lot more to say about that. But I think that, you know, the KPD wasn't waiting on external events to fall into their laps. They were waiting on themselves um, and no one was really going to create those conditions except for them. Um, I say a lot more about this in the article if people are interested, um, but I, it's it's an interesting uh, kind of factor in, in evaluating this revolutionary situation.
0: Right. So I think this is important. The analysis you're suggesting here is different from, from Trotsky and from um, historians. I'll just mention, I guess, Pierre Brouet and Chris Harmon, people who've written books very influenced by Trotsky's uh, interpretation that other listeners might have, have come across. But clearly if the communist party had led the working class to power through workers councils in 1923, the course of world history would have changed. Um, and, you know, we have a century of hindsight now to to kind of understand the situation. I think you've pointed us in a really interesting direction in terms of how we understand it. Um, can you say more about, you know, your perspective on the, what the communist leadership did and, and didn't do in those crucial spring and, and summer months? And I'm also just curious about whether, um, you know, there there's anybody at the time whose interpretation is similar to the interpretation that you have with the benefit of hindsight on this situation.
2: Um, yeah. So, I mean, my perspective on the KPD leadership's actions is obviously they bungled it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like uh, a large part of what I think is important to do for us and uh, trying to learn from this history is, is not fall into the trappings of kind of great man theory of history Um, that's not how social revolutions happen. It's not the kind of worlds that communism was building at the time. Um, And I think that the most interesting thing about this period was the way in which workers acted autonomously on a mass scale for such an extended period of time. And the results really speak for themselves in 1923 and also beforehand. But in 1923, in May, in August, um, the more of an emphasis that was placed on worker self-activity, the more possibilities opened up. And that didn't guarantee any outcome of those possibilities. But I, I think that the history of 1923 does show that um, that emphasis on worker self-activity really um, bore fruit. Um, in in other ways, um, in, in real ways, the KPD during these brief few years was actually successfully being led, not necessarily by its top leaders, but by the communist rank and file. And that was a product of this shift that happened in the party um, in the makeup of the party, in the nature of the party in 19 late 1920, 1921. Um, that was the whole point of the United Front. It changed the nature of the party um and became towards becoming led kind of like like an octopus from the tentacles. Um, and it was it was a mass, it was a very democratic institution during those years because it had to be. Um, and that's not my contribution, that's not my innovation. Um, that's been shown in many contributions of German historians like Hermann Weber and Marcel Boys. Florian Wilde, um, and in some ways um, Ulrich Eumann. Um, And so it's it's not really about the leaders. It's about the cadre and the rank and file. Um, and they took that very seriously as part of their new strategy, including a really robust political education program. Um, that's a whole other conversation. Um, as for kind of perspectives and who I agree with, I think just to say all of the KPD leaders earned their roles as leading members of this mass communist party. They were all responding to different local circumstances to different history you know like different histories of experience um and the very fact of their collective leadership was what was really important including the tensions um and so when we look at this history what what i think it's it's best to learn from was not so much you know which celebrity we or or which brand we can take on as our own mantra but rather the fact that this is a collective effort um and it involved different perspectives that um clashed and sometimes but also came together very fruitfully and created better um strategies um and so that was far more important than the thoughts of one or a few individuals um so uh that said i think that the german revolution uh presented a kind of dizzying amount of information and historical developments. so if you are trying to think through and trying to follow the kind of arguments and analyses related close most closely to kind of this worker self activity uh trend as you know for example um it's helpful to follow uh, a few people um and first of all i think it's you know the the trade union department of the kpd um which which was led by uh, uh Jakob Balcher Brandler a guy named Fritz Heckert um who uh heckert deserves a lot more attention than he gets he pulled off some incredible feats throughout the years of the german revolution um So there's that trade union department um, that was set up after the the fusion of the party and the turn United Front. And then in addition for this worker self-activity kind of trend, I think it's also helpful to follow the writings of um, and the activities of Ernst Meyer. Um, His uh, wife wrote a book called Inside German Communism that's very helpful in understanding where he was coming from. Also, Clara Zetkin, uh, persistently from like the time of Engels to the time of Hitler, was a force for like a powerhouse legend in the party. Um, and then finally, I'll just say, Carl um, Raddick uh, wrote a lot uh, that was based around this kind of uh, self-activity perspective. He was the first person to systematically articulate the United Front strategy in January 1921 um, after it was developed within the trade union department of the KPD. Um, and uh, he, I think his writings are also kind of Ariadne's thread uh, throughout the the whole period. Um, so everybody, uh, I will say, even, even Ruth Fisher and the left's, um, in Berlin and Hamburg, um, had, uh, a lot of very astute observations and, and contributions to make. Um, and so I don't want me just highlighting a few names to detract from the fact of that collective leadership.
0: I guess this, you know, I just want to probe you on with one more question. And that's the, the question about why it was bungled, you know, I mean, if you have, cause you're, it's obviously a very complex situation. And I think you really highlight, um, the depths of social crisis that we're talking about here. Um, you know this is and it's really important i think for us not to kind of um, yeah like be armchair quarterbacks on this or, or you know to kind of from a from a distance to um arrogantly um you know fail to recognize the complexity and the, the difficulty of the situation but can you just say a little more about why you think you know despite this this wealth of experience um and political sophistication uh in the collective leadership at different layers in the party that it did play out the way that it did. Not I mean, to judge that, but to understand, right? Yeah, yeah,
2: totally. Um I think that there's a lot of different factors and I what I try to do is lay out the different factors um and and not make the the hard case that one predominated over the other. Um those factors included just because I'm trying to learn from this in in conversation with others too, you know. Um I think that some of those factors included um you know, over the course of the spring of 1923 there were kind of centrifugal forces in the leadership of the party. There was um, a huge rift that opened up between the lefts um, that were based in Berlin and to some degree in Hamburg um, and then the Brandler leadership. Um, there were also other positions kind of staked out, primarily by the trade unionists um, and Ernst Mayer. um But, you know, the lefts were accusing Brandler's leadership of opportunist collaboration with the SPD uh brandler's leadership was accusing the lefts of um of kind of wanting to just revert to this kind of uh, just call make the call for political workers councils and that'll solve all the problems um which they had worked so hard over the last 2 years to to kind of step climb their way out of um and these rifts uh, got really bad and it eventually led to a mediation process in Moscow in May during this movement that had broken out in the Ruhr um so i think that you know like we could look more it, there's a lot that's been written about um the kind of the 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 leadership focus of of the both the russian and the german communist parties there's something that's happening there not just because the leaders are geniuses but because they represent trends within the workers movement um the deg- the degree to which the, they represented trends i think is is also subject to dispute pierre Rouet, for example says that basically every single district was united uniformly behind each leader I think that that's been disputed in a lot of the subsequent historiog- uh, historiography, though I think there's also a grain of truth to that in, in several cases, people just not paying attention to the squabbles in the leadership, so they just trust the people they know. There's a lot to say there. There's this other factor that um, I do think really played one of the major roles, which is that the KPD was worried about um, isolation of an insurrection, you know? And so what happens in May is... Th- this united front policy, although there's various ways that it's uh, manifests from 1920 until 1923, including, you know, first they were cooperating with leaderships, then they were building councils, but all of these were designed to like bring in more rank and file workers. That core element of like initiation, a focus on the rank and file and self-activity starts to shift a bit in May. And um, we can debate the reasons behind that, but towards reigning in the movement. Um, and I think a lot of people, historians have drawn comparisons with the Russian revolution of 1917, um, the July days, like, like not wanting to have an isolated, uh, outpost of the revolution that would be vulnerable, which I think that, you know, there's a rationale behind for not wanting to do that, that start, especially in May. I think I can see some of the, the rationale behind it because of the exceptional situation in the Ruhr it's occupied by the French. It's almost a different country at that point. Um, But then in August, uh, you know, I think that there's the policy kind of just continues and and it it hardens around just reigning in the movement around um, wanting to avoid unpredictability um, and wanting to kind of make sure that everything was uh, controlled by the Communist Party itself. And I think that shift from this kind of mass from below perspective that a revolutionary situation is going to come from. A number of different forces, all of whom have a role to play um, that others cannot play, um, but like trying to coordinate that, even without the the benefit of predictability, um, that's what the revolution means in in a, an industrialized comp- country like Germany shifts more towards a kind of necess- necessity of control, um, and like for 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 some good reasons too, right? It's not a nefarious thing. It comes from a place of like we don't want this precious revolutionary movement to get smashed and destroyed forever um unfortunately i think the outcome was it was smashed and destroyed forever anyway um and so like the the reasons behind that policy have a lot to do not just with the the moral fortitude of the leadership but with the whole experience of this massive workers movement over the previous four years you've got the cap push there's a debate after the cap push about the tactics and the role of the communist party and like you know, like a huge debate that played out in the pages of the, the Internationale, which was the, the theoretical organ of the Communist International. There was, after the Bavarian, uh, there was a council republic declared in Munich and in Bavaria. Um, after that, there was a huge debate um, about like the appropriate role of communists. Um, a, a lot of that was a debate between Paul Levy and Karl Radek. Um And, you know, I think that the action that that debate also informed a lot of people. Um, because people were talking about it, it was a council republic, um, and it wasn't just the debate in in the journal of intellectuals. It was it was the experience of of the communist party, and it was followed by a lot of left USPD members. Um, anyway, just to say, I think that however we assess the reasons for uh, the failure of the revolution in Germany in 1923, a focus on not just like what what was written in in intellectual journals or theoretical organs, but also the experience and activities of the of the communist rank and file those were the people who were going to make the revolution um and it was their their kind of activities that um you know the reasons why people were felt like it was important to rein reign in the councils in the roar in may and in august um that wasn't done by heinrich brandler that was done by thousands and thousands of council activists and shop stewards who had the trust of their comrades and co-workers and stuff like that so there's a lot more to say about this um but i do think from a, a zoomed out perspective um looking at those shifts that happened in the united front uh, to kind of transform what it meant in 1923 have have a central role
0: thanks for that you know in addition to having a link in the show notes to your article you can include links to some other things that people might want to read that are available in english Uh, but i think we should now perhaps move to you know the times that we live in today um in obviously very you know extremely different circumstances um, than the ones we've been talking about and what socialists today can take from these events when we think about the political horizon that we find ourselves looking towards in the 21st century. So do you have any thoughts you'd like to share to get us off to a bit of a conversation on this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I it's very difficult to take direct, even with, you know, I think the United Front, for example, was a brilliant strategy. Um, the tactics were responding to a conjuncture that was entirely uh, specific to Weimar Germany in 1923, there are elements of it that have a lot of relevance today, but like it's, you're not going to take tactical advice from a hundred years ago in a totally different context for what our movement should do today. I Maybe do I think can, that, oh, oh, if I can just ahead.
0: jump in on that, on that one point, just to kind of, um, you know, talk about one piece of that. I just want to um, suggest that, you know, when you talk about the United Front tactic, it's a tactic that's developed uh, in terms of the relationship between mass parties, Right. And I think this is something that's often forgotten when people try to kind of derive, like apply, when they talk about applying the United Front tactic in the here and now, that it was formulated in terms of how, you know, large, but still very much minority Communist Party would relate to much larger social democratic and other reformist forces. But the whole context for that, of course, is a workers movement of a kind that doesn't exist anymore, um, you know, in, in most places. And so, and I think it's just, because there's a risk of the people kind of um, who learn some of this stuff, then apply it as a cliche, and think that you can somehow just immediately apply a tactic that was designed, you know, in in that context into, you know, the situation you find yourself in, in a particular city in North America today, which doesn't mean that it's irrelevant. Like, I think there's something about the spirit of the united front that we can actually put into practice in our organizing. Um, But we have to recognize that, it was what it was, right? Um, and not maybe with the, the kind of the vulgate version of it that gets passed down to us. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I think that that mass party context is probably the chief difference in our our different um, contexts. I I also think that the United Front was not just about alliances. Um, well, first of all, it was about alliances with mass parties, including parties to the left of the KPD. That was always part of it. Um it was also about a shift from propaganda to uh, initiatives, concrete initiatives around immediate needs. And so I would always a- 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 append a kind of like, the United Front was about mass party alliances, but action-oriented, um, initiative-oriented, um, and that it was it was self-activity. It was the birth of a kind of self-activity as a perspective in the communist movement um, in explicit terms. So just to say about the United Front. I also think we're trying to learn from it um, if you today are convinced that capitalism cannot work, um, that we need an alternative to save the planet and save the future, you're going to have to think of what that transition is going to involve. And 1923 represents the high point of the post-war revolutionary wave on a global scale. Um, and it had particular effects. It's going to involve crises, and there's no way around that. And those crises are not self-caused. Those are imposed by capitalism, of course. Um, But I do think that 1923 shows the stakes of refusing to submit and coming very close to overturning not just political figureheads in a government, but overthrowing a whole industrialized market economy. Um, And that process is going to shatter your world. So like think COVID, the pandemic, but on an escalating scale every year for four years, attended by uprisings each time. It just makes the whole world more malleable. And it also raises questions about, okay, is this worth it? Um, the persistent crisis. And I think that like the the scale of the planetary crisis um, has a lot to do in terms of answering those questions. And it's not something that like, it's gonna pose choices that are bad choices all around. Um, and it's just, I think it's something to grapple with as we're trying to think through a, a way to build a different kind of a future. Um, I also think that this history clearly shows the limits of a kind of commentary approach to politics um you know i think that that communist principles were the foundation of the communist movement and it would not have existed or persisted without them at the same time slogans and positions don't by themselves do anything in the world uh, the kpd learned that uh, already by 1920 um that was the basis for ditching that approach um and becoming a real revolutionary factor in germany um as i've talked about but like the point is that relationships mattered the trust between workers had to be there in order to take those risks and take those actions collectively and taking collective action was ultimately what changed the dynamics of the situation in their favor um and one last thing i think um it which is that i think the key thing for today as we're facing a numerous world ending crises is is like drop drop the cynicism around uh like our ability to build an alternative you know these people at this time 100 years ago their lives meant something. They fought not just to survive, but to build a new world. Um, And if you're looking at our reality right now with the climate in collapse and borders militarizing and police and prisons killing and caging people in unimaginable numbers, um, I think we need to get serious and get clear around what matters. um, And we need to stop shrinking from thinking about these kinds of things. Um, You know, It's the same thing that they confronted. Nobody's coming to save us. Um, We ourselves have to do something about the world that's the starting point. And when you believe that no one is coming to save you, uh, you start to see and feel our own alternative is something that you can rely on. Um, and I think that you start to become capable of those kinds of actions and building the ties that are required for mass collective action. Um, and that doesn't happen through fear or cynicism or even intelligence, it happens through courage. Um, which is something that every person can have.
0: Yeah, I really agree. And I think that there's a way, although of course the circumstances, you know, the social environment we're in is so different from Germany in the early 1920s. There's a way in which you know, in a slow grinding process that sometimes moves forward by leaps and sometimes that is a much slower process, we are moving further and further from the social reality that was forged during the long post-war boom, right? Which has had a very long kind of after effect in terms of our expectations and in terms of the, the institutionalized forms of class struggle, you know, bureaucratized unions and labor relations under the state and all those kinds of things in the advanced capitalist countries. Um, But... There's a way in which um, I think you yeah, by, by you know, drawing out some of the ways in which people's sense of what you know what reality was and what was possible was just shattered by the war and by what came afterwards, it does point us towards the importance of um, everything that we can do that fosters the self-activity of the exploited and the, and the oppressed as the key, right? And so politics that talk about you know the crisis of leadership as the problem. Are so fundamentally misorienting for us um, because it's not that leadership doesn't matter, but that it's irrelevant in the absence of the self-activity. You know, the leadership has to be grounded in ways that we're exploited and impress people organizing themselves to change their world. Um, and so then this, this should affect how we relate to left-wing social democrats and the Bernie Sanders of the world and so on. Is that the, our our guiding thread always has to be how do we relate to what's happening in people's lives in a way that uh, fosters this self-activity, the self-organization? And saying, not just that no one is um, coming to save us, but that, you know, the working class does have the power to change the world, but that's a message that only a small number of people are going to be able to buy into at this point, make as such. So we have to do whatever we can to create the conditions where people begin to actually discover their own power. Um, and that can be around everything from how you take on a, a problem in the workplace in a very small way to direct action rather than reliance on the grievance procedure, for example to how you organize in the community, to how you relate to um, in the province where I live, Manitoba, we've just had the election of a a new democratic party government, you know, that's party with a social democratic past. (laughs) Uh, um, And, you know, so then the question that faces everybody who's involved in, um, you know, anti-police work or anything else, unions in in this uh, place is how do we use this context to try to actually build uh, some counter power from below rather than expecting that um, These people are going to give us the the solutions we need or address the rise of the far right or anything like that. You
2: know, I think that you ended on a really great place. And so maybe we could just, uh, I I don't have
0: much to add to that. So that sounded great. Okay, then we can wrap there. Um, Can you, thank you, this was, I think it was. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.